Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Talking Intellectual History, hosted by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews. I'm Robin Mills. This week we're delighted to be talking with Professor Alec Royley. Hello Alec, how are you? Hello Robin, great to be with you. Alec is Professor of the History of Christianity in the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Durham. Uh, he is also uh, on a, beginning a four-year post Professor of Divinity at Gresham College down in London. He's a specialist in the history of Protestantism, leading recently to Protestants, The Radicals Who Made the Modern World, published in 2017. Uh, and the book we're going to talk to him about today, Unbelievers, An Emotional History of Doubt, published with Harvard's Belknap Press in 2019, and also just out, A Very Brief History of the English Reformation with SPCK uh, in February 2020. Now, I've invited Alec on, not because he's an intellectual historian, you might not want to be associated with intellectual history, <laughs> but because Unbelievers has some very interesting things to say about intellectual change that I think might be provoking or stimulating uh, to listeners, uh, for listeners of this podcast. But Alec, I will let you explain all of that. Um, so can you give us an overview of the book and what prompted you to write it? Uh, sure. Well, I'll, th- th- let me give you the, the account of how I came to how, how I came to write it, which was when I was writing on working on my last book, but one or two about um, Protestant practice in uh, 16th, early 17th century England. And I was reading a lot of Puritan um, diaries, self-writing of one, one kind or another. And I kept coming across these intensely pious people talking in terms about their temptations to atheism. Um, their temptations, as some of them put it, to believe that there is no God. And this this is not what they're supposed to be saying, according to the standard histories, either of atheism or of Puritanism. Um, And I thought this this looked sufficiently intriguing that there was a thread there that was worth pulling at. And because that was the, the project that really made me aware of the what I now see as the necessity um, for the history of religion, for taking um, the history of emotions as the kind of framing method for understanding religious experience. Um, I took that same methodology to apply to this this problem of the history of unbelief um, on the assumption that belief and unbelief are related phenomena. Um, it struck me that the the history of atheism, as it's normally told, and that's obviously the A word is very problematic, and I imagine we're going to talk about it, um, that that story is often told, not just in intellectual terms, but I think in, in rather narrowly conceived intellectual terms. Um, and in discussions over this with a, a, a number of friends and colleagues, and in particular, I'd want to, to single out Ethan Shagan at, at, at Berkeley for this, um, I came to conclude that we needed, having had plenty of intellectual histories of atheism written, that it was time somebody had a bash at writing an emotional history of atheism. Um, and that ended up as the, as the subtitle of my book and, and what I've attempted to do. Brilliant. Uh, can we um, let's split those two up then? Can we talk about a little bit more about the intellectual histories of atheism um, and what you saw as being, so you mentioned there the idea that they've been most prominent, but there's also a sense that they needed to be critiqued, that there was something um, lacking in them. I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about what you thought was wrong with those approaches or what could be improved and refined, whatever. Um, and then let's talk about what an emotional history is. Sure. In a second. So, okay. what, what, yeah, well, what, what did you not like about us? I'll, I'll try to keep <laughs> the two subjects separate, although we might, I may not succeed. Um, I don't, I don't have a problem with what the intellectual histories of the subjects say as such. My concern is just that there's a, a large part of the subject that they miss out. A crucial, I think, part of the subject that they that they miss out. And you can see that most obviously in the in the chronology. Um, I mean, to I'm I'm going to do some crude caricaturing now, so you know, forgive me. Um, But the the standard narrative that you will find of of histories of of atheism and 
you know, I could document this up across a number of different um, uh, a number of different authors, is that this is essentially a story that begins with the with the early Enlightenment, maybe with a nod back to the ancient world. Um, Spinoza is the first significant character in it, whether Spinoza is an atheist or not. I mean, let's not get into that. Um, I, I, I think not, but I do think that it's true to say that the intellectual breakthroughs that he makes make a kind of intellectually coherent philosophical atheism possible in a way that it wasn't before. And from an intellectual history point of view, that's an obvious starting point. And then you've got this, this narrative, which is led by um, philosophical and then by scientific critics of established religion of one kind or another. Um, there's deists who get swept up in all this and nobody ever treats them with very much respect. Um, and you have a, 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 a high road to modern secularism leading right through the right, right, right through the modern period. It's essentially an, a long enlightenment story. Um, and that's fine. Uh, and, you know, as a as an intellectual story, clearly that that thread exists and and is very powerful. I do think that even within the period that it covers, it doesn't have nearly as much explanatory power as as it sometimes seems to think. And I think if, if you look at the histories of secularization as a social phenomenon in the later 19th, 20th into the 21st centuries, you see how those accounts are really quite disconnected from what's going on in terms of the of the intellectual history. I mean, it's it's often struck me that the the high point of that kind of classic Enlightenment, the post Enlightenment intellectual critique of of, of Christianity in particular, um, was you know sometime around the early twentieth century. Um, that there have been a whole series of scientific and historical developments since then, which have have tended to weaken rather than to to strengthen that case so i mean you know the the notion of a of, of, of a universe which began at a specific moment rather than being perpetual was once seen as a, as a theistic myth um and you know now 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 that's become established likewise um you know scientific racism um and all that you know the the the, the denial that there is a single unified human species um, which was a you know an established orthodoxy in the early 20th century in in many circles anyway um, and you know that's that's now now fallen apart mercifully um, so even within the modern period I think this relating that intellectual history which is you know important interesting in its own right to the history of social change and the decay of of, of of religiosity in in western cultures is problematic where i think it really comes unraveled is in the period before that classic narrative starts um it's it's traditional here to um to inv in, invoke febre who who talks about um, you know, the, the, or at least supposedly talks about the impossibility of atheism in the 16th century, which, which, which he's talking about. But in um, that's often extended to refer to the kind of the whole pre-modern period. Um, and it's now routine for historians of of atheism or, or doubt or you know, any of that family of subjects to begin by saying, well, of course, that's not quite right. Actually, when you when you go back and read Pevler, what he what he says is is subtler than that. He's perfectly aware that it was almost commonplace for 16th century people to say things like there is no God um, and, and to, to make bluntly 
atheistic, blasphemous statements. Um, but Fevre says that because those statements have no intellectual, no philosophical underpinnings, um, that they're of no consequence and that they, they should be ignored. He compares them to the, 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 you know, the ravings of a, of, of a drunkard who denies that the earth is turning because he can't feel it moving beneath his feet. And I mean, okay, from an intellectual history point of view, I, I see that point. Um, but, you know, we live in an age in which we've become freshly aware that um, just because intellectuals think that something is important doesn't necessarily mean that anybody's going to follow them. Um, and and indeed, the, it's maybe the, 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 the curse of being um, self-consciously intellectual that you overestimate the importance of ideas and of philosophy in, in, in human affairs. Um, and so I wanted to go back and look at those those drunkards, um, at the people who are making assertions of unbelief, which they don't have a theory, an, you know, a fully worked out articulated theory to to support. Some of them have have picked up some bits of Lucretius or something from somewhere, but but you know, really, we're not talking about anything anything terribly sophisticated. Um, but that just because they don't have a theory supporting it um, doesn't mean that they can't hold on to, to, to those beliefs. And you know, so I end up saying in the book, you know, just because you don't know what you're talking about doesn't stop you from having an opinion, um, which I think is, is a phenomenon we can all recognize in the, in the world today. Um, and so I thought, well, if the the traditional beginning of the story is Spinoza. I want to write the prehistory of this. How do we get to a point not where people begin to articulate an atheistic philosophy or a philosophy that can be turned in atheistic directions, but why is it that people might want to do that, might be looking for a philosophy? Because as, as I think we all know, if you need a philosophy badly enough, you're going to find one. Um, so, you know, what is it that produced a demand for this? Um, you know, so I'm 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 looking at this kind of raw, often inarticulate tendency towards unbelief, which has not yet been neatly baked and sliced and packaged the way the philosophers do. But it seems to me that that prehistory is must be fundamental to everything that, that that followed so that was the story i said how to try and tell that's fascinating i just comes uh, comes to mind here is if, you, if you're a, a researcher or a student of intellectual history you one approach to that is to stay on that level of rarefied ideas right and understanding how uh, the genealogy of arguments how they develop over time um but you're always open to the accusation of why does any of this matter for people who don't care about that stuff, which is often a lot of uh, <laughs> large parts of history departments. Um, and then as soon as you step out and try and have a, a larger conversation, you then come up against all well, the, the points you were just making that intellectual history is, I mean, you've politely not mentioned anyone, but <laughs> in your introduction, you do mention Jonathan Israel sort of having this idea in, um, I forget which volume of his uh, you know, expanding treatise on the enlightenment and its significance um but the idea the intellectual speak and then the world catches up and that sort of idea that well maybe you, you can finesse that point in a moment but um the idea that uh, it, there's a top-down process going on with intellectual change um and as soon as you step out as a i think as an intellectual historian out of the world of tracing traditions and genealogies into what is the significance of what i'm doing you come up against very strong arguments um, against the um, significance, or, you know, the grandeur of what you think you're doing gets lessened <laughs> very quickly. And we might talk about that with toleration later on. I don't know if you're familiar with Ben Kaplan's work about religious, to you know, religious toleration sort of being enshrined in practice long before um, being articulated uh, in a sophisticated way. Um, yes, yeah, so, yeah, finesse the Israel point if you think I've 
uh, maligned either him or you there um then can we talk about what is an emotional history then what did you what what does that look like what what have you what have you been doing differently well i mean in in in, in relation to to Jonathan Israel's point i mean yeah yes obviously i'm disagreeing with the with the the, the approach he's taking although i i do agree with him about the centrality of spinoza to this to this story um I don't think you can be absolutist about about this. The relationship between the the high intellectual world and the society which incubates it, um, you know, is 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 a dialectic one. Um, and clearly, both sides influence one another. I, I guess the reason I'm wary of that kind of intellectual genealogy. Uh, that that set of assumptions, the idea that um, concepts descend by a set of pristine successions and evolve almost as if they were entities in their own right, um, uh, to which one can apply some kind of Darwinian process. Um, you know, that that metaphorically extending Darwinism to the history of ideas seems problematic to me. Um, my, my concern is that we miss the other way in which this can happen, um, which is that ideas are bubbling up from their wider social context. Um, I, this struck me particularly looking at some of the 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 radical spiritualist currents, which become an important part of my of my story, um, where you can try you 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 can with a, a little bit of creativity trace a fairly plausible intellectual genealogy of these kinds of radical movements going through the the German spiritualists and the Dutch collegians um, and the English antinomians and 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 and, and you know, so on through finally to the English seekers and ranters and Quakers. Um, and it requires making some big leaps because there are links in that chain that we simply don't know. And, you know, okay, that may be the case. But I'm much more interested in the question of why it is that these ideas that had been knocking around for a century and a half suddenly find themselves in such fertile soil in Mid sixteenth, mid seventeenth century England, um, tracing the genealogy of the movement, I think can be can tell you less than exploring the sudden precipitation of a moment of why it is that the zeitgeist at a particular point seems often simultaneously and with at least connections that are difficult to trace between them to push multiple people down the same intellectual trajectories. Mm. Um, I, and I'd, I'd want to be open to the idea of genuinely parallel pristine developments or near pristine developments rather than shared descent from the same source. Yeah. Interesting. I, I suppose I just... Uh, realizing we might be moving at breakneck speed with this. Um, can you just very briefly, um, when you're using terms like doubt and unbelief and atheism, um, what do they mean? Okay, well, atheism is the is 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 the big one, and obviously, it's a it's a word which has shifted. Um, and one of the things that I, I wanted to try and do in the book is to recover some of the breadth of meaning that it that it used to have, because I think it's valuable. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the the modern definition of atheism, I think, is is reasonably straightforward. It's it's the the postulation that there is no God. Um, I mean, of course, you can do lots and lots of things with that, but I think that that more or less holds. But and this is a is a word with Greek roots, um, and the the ancient Greek meaning is much closer to the modern English word godless. Um, and I mean, I, I, I think it's telling that when 
ancient in ancient times when Greek texts containing the word were translated into Latin, um, the word was not then transliterated into Latin. It only appears as a Latin word in the 16th century. Um, but the, the translation used in ancient times was impious. Um, I mean, we would now think of atheism and impiety as rather different things. Mm. Um, in the 16th century, when the you know in the, in the Renaissance, when the word is is recovered in the West, um, is translated uh, translated into Latin, transliterated really into Latin, and then pretty quickly into all of the major um, European languages, um, the meaning. The meanings associated with it certainly include what they would call speculative atheism. Um, that is the postulation that there is no God. Um, although speculative atheism had a broader range than that core, it might also include what you could call constructive atheism in the sense of, of denials of such fundamental doctrines that they amount to a denial of God. Um, and that gets stretched quite a long way. I mean, you will find Catholics arguing that to deny transubstantiation is tantamount to atheism. Um, and you will find Protestants arguing that to uphold papal infallibility is tantamount to atheism. Um, so you can reach a point where virtually everybody in 16th century Europe is an atheist in somebody's eyes. Um, but you've also alongside that got the whole field of what was sometimes called practical atheism, um, which is living as if there were no God, regardless of what you might profess. Um, and again, that can be stretched, you know, almost indefinitely. And you will find preachers saying that anybody who who commit sin in the knowledge that what they're doing is sinful is a practical atheist because you know at least at that moment they clearly don't believe in the reality of divine punishment which you know has got a, a degree of intellectual coherence to it but it's also you know obviously a kind of fairly silly rhetorical point and and empties the the word of all meaning the value of that broader sense of, of of atheism as as godlessness though i think is is worth holding on to um because you know, not not only because it, it fits with the way that it's discussed by by early modern writers um but if you're interested as as i you know fundamentally am in the the social, the experiential, the personal consequences of of these philosophical um, issues, then questions of how one lives out one's belief can't be separated from the questions of of of, of what those beliefs are. And some of the most, well, to my mind, the the, the most perceptive discussions of these questions during the 16th and 17th century, um, you know, I'm thinking of, of Montaigne and Pascal in particular, uh, are are right on top of this and are are, are saying you, you, you cannot discuss abstract propositions in, you know, in any way separately from questions of of the consequences of those propositions in in a believer's life and indeed if you look at and this is coming on to the, the second part of your question if you look at the way that terms like faith belief unbelief knowledge opinion um you know those none of those words mean quite the same thing um the way that those are discussed across this period there's an intense awareness that opinion, assertions of fact, are are almost meaningless um, unless they're they're lived out in a in a in a particular way. That that faith, which of course is so fundamental to, to Protestantism, so much weight is placed on 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 that concept. 
faith is much more an experiential and an emotional concept, as Protestant theology would define it, um, than it is about assent to a series of of propositions. Um, and so, in trying to 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 recover the the emotional framing of this subject, I've I found myself wanting to to broaden out from atheism as as narrowly defined to look at it in the full breadth of the way it's talked about in the period. Okay, fantastic. I can we do this these answer these questions very, very briefly. Um, <laughs> but before we jump I want to jump into the Protestant uh, to the Reformation and the sort of the emotional turmoil of that time uh, and where your story sort of uh, really gets going. I wondered whether in the mid in the medieval and early modern period uh, before the Reformation, um, doubt is around, and I wondered whether you, I got the sense from your opening chapters that you had a sense that doubt is around because it's just human nature to doubt. There's, there's always going to be a sort of a, <laughs> a human nature to doubt, but also that it's kind of built into theism. And I, I think it, my question there was going to be about the sort of propositional nature of uh, theism, but what you just said sort of conflicted with that. But when doubts around in the medieval period, um, does it have the same sort of origins as it's going to do during the Reformation, but it's just um, rarer, uh, it's not, uh, times aren't as um, conducive to its spilling out? I'm not even sure it's, it's rarer. Um, it's just managed differently. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm wary of terms like human nature, which have a kind of timeless absolutism to it, which seems to me to be problematic. Um, but I think it's very clear that you can see doubt of all kinds as a, a regularly recurring phenomenon um, in, in medieval sources. It, it pops up in all different sorts of shapes in all in, 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 in many circumstances. Um, if somebody were to argue that it was that, that um, doubt was a fundamental part of human nature, I would find it difficult to come up with counterexamples to, to prove the opposite. Um, so I think that that case could be made. But what the what the medieval world had had managed to do was was not to not to stamp it out and of course you know there's there's strong biblical and theological arguments to say that that doubt and and belief are intimately interconnected and and, and, and i do think that the propositional nature of, of of christian doctrine makes it particularly liable to it that it's making potentially um you know, deniable assertions. Um, and it's also putting people regularly into situations where they've got a strong motivation to deny those assertions, um, that Christianity is, is making moral and financial and a great many other claims on people and is also pressing them to believe counterintuitive doctrines like the immortality of the soul um, or transubstantiation um, and sometimes celebrating how difficult those doctrines are to believe um, rather than rather than trying to rather than trying to deny it but what the medieval world manages to do is to create a situation in which um, In, in, in which the um, expression of doubt can be contained, um, that either it manifests itself as moral revolt against the church, and you've got you know this recurrent feature in a lot of church courts of of, of, of people who are um, apparently amoral or rejecting accepted Christian morality, rejecting core doctrines or the, the, or, or, or the being of God um, 
alongside that. And as far as the church is concerned, that's great. This is exactly the kind of doubt they want um, because it demonstrates the, the fundamental connection between the morally ordered universe that they're preaching and the doctrines that they're preaching. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is perfect. You know, everybody wants the right kind of opponents. Um, or it's happening within a, a, a set of pastoral circumstances, deathbed doubts, assault by the, by the devil and so on, which are predictable and predicted and managed and, 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 and contained. The real difference, I think, post the Reformation is that these sort of long-standing endemic doubts get weaponized um, and that uh, both sides, um, I mean, the Protestants started, but the Catholics very quickly are, are, are forced by the logic of arms races to join in, um, find themselves picking up these long-standing tendencies to doubt and taking them out of the various contained spaces in which they'd existed and using them against one another and indeed training whole populations in their use. Um, and, you know, once you've armed an entire population, it's sometimes difficult to control what they do with their weapons. <laughs> and let's uh, ask you to develop that idea, but sort of combine it with, now I've read you, and I might be wrong, but I've read um, the argument as something along the lines of um, unbelief uh, grows um, during the emotional and political turmoil of the Reformation. So the larger context is that um, institutional cultural framework of constraint that was around in the medieval period is fracturing, it is falling apart. And in that space, emotions are able to run more, more uh, freely, more wildly than they were before. Um, you're, you're frowning slightly, so yep. maybe that's not <laughs> that's not where, where, where you were going. Um, but yeah, so is it does that, that belief that, grow in the sort of context of things falling apart and the old order falling apart and um, new structures coming into place? There's clearly an element of that, the, the, the friction between the, the emerging um, confessional formations of the, of, of, of the Reformation creates spaces, um, in, you know, cracks in, 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 in which um, dissidents can, can grow up. And clearly one of the phenomena that's most conducive to to doubt um, and you know, the, the movements away from from any established orthodoxy into one of the, the in any of the various worlds of doubt that get labeled atheism one of the things that's most conducive to that is conversion and especially repeated conversion people who convert back and forward or who find themselves havering between um, or, or, or caught between different confessions. So yes, that's that's a very important part of it. But I think there's also it, it it's it's more than that. There is a tendency towards skepticism which is built into the heart of the post-Reformation confessions themselves. Um, the the Protestants, and I I do think there's something particular to Protestantism here, although um, there's a, a set of arguments that Catholics develop in polemically against Protestants that tend in the same way. Um, Protestantism builds an awful lot of its identity around skepticism. Um, not just skepticism, but, but, you know, really scabrous, mocking skepticism. Um, you know, to, to, to be a Protestant, a large part of being a Protestant is knowing what you have to disbelieve, knowing which of the traditional doctrines that your grandparents and great grandparents and generations before you lived and died in are, are ridiculous, are risible. Um, and, and, and the means in which you should be able to, to dismiss them. And that is a, an unstable business because you've got this you're, you're suddenly being challenged as as a as a believer and as i said i think this is most acute for protestants but you do see catholics doing the same thing to to this high wire act in which 
you want to maintain your commitment to faith because that's what Christians do. But you also need to hold on to, to this very important set of disbeliefs and skepticisms and how to be credulous and incredulous at the same time and apply those things in the correct way. I mean, it can be done. Most people manage to do it, but it's tricky. And it does mean that many of those who do do it, and I spend some time with with people um, like Montaigne, um, who I think is very much an, an exemplar of this, um, uh, or, 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 or Brown or Chillingworth, um, or John Donne even. Um, these are people who, who clearly end up in a, a fairly stable and more or less orthodox place in terms of their of their theology but they have not got there by an acceptable or orthodox route they have been they've spent quite a lot of time playing with skeptical ideas and have eventually got to somewhere that's socially acceptable by a messy and sophisticated path um and as a result they've become what 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 i call you know post atheists but the experience of having passed through that episode of of doubt and of skepticism has brought them to a different kind of faith no doubt a more mature a much much deeper more reflective more valuable truer faith than before but nevertheless that process is potentially really destabilizing and for every montaigne or brown who successfully navigated there are others who lose their footing and find themselves by the you know even if their their identity is right at the heart of one of the confessions the logic of interconfessional conflict is itself um you know cutting the ground from under their feet i suppose two questions come to mind there one is that you know to the skeptical intellectual history historian listening to what you just said you're talking about the influence of skepticism as a um how does this fit in with this not being about i you know theorists leading the way where's the skepticism coming from is it informed by the ancients are loads of people reading montaigne and then applying that to their day-to-day -day lives how where do the ideas you know the theories fit in with this wider um, cultural phenomenon of increased scepticism. Well, um, you know, if I'm if I'm trying to mollify the um, intellectual historians, I'm probably not going to help by saying that I'm inclined to see the theories more as 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 effects than as causes, um, which is is you know why I'm I I I, I find them so valuable. I I I think it's important to say maybe I should have said this before that when I say intellectual history emotional history i'm not trying to to put that as posit that as an opposite to intellectual history which can be can be held over against it um the emotions are not irrational or or anti-intellectual they're the fuel on which um human intellect runs um so the I, I, the emotional history, as as I understand the discipline, and certainly as I conceive it, embraces the the intellectual world, but is not exhausted by it. Um, there are points where you can see the separation between the two, but this notion of the head and the heart as opposites which is so deeply woven into our thought is is a seven is is of 17th century origin and i think the fact that it comes out of this same period is not a coincidence um that that we we begin to think of the emotions as as in opposition to the to the intellectual life um the 16th and 17th century writers on this whose work I find the most intuitively congenial do not take that approach um, and it seems to me that a lot of modern both philosophy and psychology makes 
that attempt to separate the emotion and the intellect untenable. Um, so when I say emotional history, I'm not trying to suggest something that is is purely about instinct or feeling, because human beings don't work that way. Um, our, our intellects feed into our emotions, but also you know, profoundly, I think undeniably, our emotions colour and often determine our our intellects, which are scrabbling along behind, trying to come up with rationalizations for what we've decided that we actually need to believe. I suppose you could respond with, um, it might be that, uh, what's the right phrase, is weather vein the right word? Uh, that Montaigne re represents something that's going on a wider social uh, development, but at the same time, he's influencing it. So the sure. symbiotic thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, as, as, as I said, in relation to, to, to Jonathan Israel, you know, there's a there's a genuine dialectic. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we know that Shakespeare is reading Montaigne because he he nicks some lines from. Him. <laughs> um, and there there is a whole industry of attempting to work out well, you know, to what intellectual influence was there on Shakespeare's work from from Montaigne and you know trying to say anything certain about Shakespeare's pattern of thought I mean I do dip my toe in these waters as you'll have seen mm -hmm. um is is really problematic what I think you can say is that there are resonances here and do those resonances mean a, a, a line of direct cause and effect well, possibly, but anyway, I think anyone who asserts that for certain is making a statement of faith rather than of fact. Um, what I think you can see as as historians are the parallels, um, and I'm more inclined, based on the assumption that almost everything there is to know about the 16th and 17th century is permanently lost to us, to to guess that where there are parallels the connections between them are subterranean and unseen rather than that we we can see two points point a and point b and we can draw a direct line from, from one to the other so yeah we're going to have to <laughs> destroy all of your nuance and complexity and because we're running out of time um what is the role i think i think you began speaking about this a few minutes ago but um there are two types of or two theories of unbelief that you focus in on one is uh, the uh, unbelief of angst and that is the unbelief of anger could we do those in in turn let's start off with angst what did you mean yeah. by the unbelief of angst yeah i should have called it angst rather than anxiety in the book shouldn't oh, I? Sorry, angst sorry, sorry. anger makes it make a make make a better pair <laughs> um I, I mean the these are two threat two um streams which i track right through from from the medieval period, um, you know, through my focus on the 16th and 17th centuries, and 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 down into in, into modernity, um, anger is the obvious one. Um, this this is um, resistance to churches, clergy, which you know take your money, tell you what to do, um, boss people around, and they don't like it. And that's a phenomenon as old as the hills, and it. If you get into an argument with your parish priest about that, pretty quickly he tells you that you've got to do what he said because he's God's representative, and then your choices are either to back down or to expand your quarrel to include God as well. Um, and lots of people who are prosecuted for atheism or blasph blasphemous statements that, that amount to atheism um, and, and many of the most notorious cases, like like um, Christopher Marlowe, uh, seem to me plainly to be motivated by this sort of rage and coming up with rationalizations to, to, to support their rejection of a power structure which they, which they find unacceptable. Um, and that can sometimes be purely self-serving. Um, and But it often, and I think this is one of the really interesting developments in the early modern period, it acquires a, an edge of self-righteousness, um, a dismissal of of Christian doctrine or of the power of a particular church as morally unacceptable in some form. 
um, and, and and an assertion of of a, of a different approach as as you know, not just better for that individual, but as as as, as morally superior. Um, there's a, there's a bid for the moral high ground. Anxiety, the, the the unbelief of anxiety seems to me to to spin out of a quite different set of of circumstances, of which the most stereotypical um, is sickness or the deathbed. Um, you know those those moments when you think, well, I know intellectually because it fits with the entire world that I've been brought up in that um, human beings are endowed with an immortal soul but I'm still frightened um, and you know em embracing that sort of of belief and and really translating it into um, you know in, 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 into lived experience is perpetually difficult um, and I mean the, the the analogy I keep going back to on this is, you know, if um, when 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 I'm in a plane, um, you know, I know that it's not going to fall out of the sky. I understand enough of the physics to to, to, to you know to be confident of that. That doesn't stop me gripping the seat and my knuckles going white when we hit about a turbulence. You know, I know it's not dangerous, but nevertheless, um, it, you know. So so when I'm talking about anxiety, I'm not talking about a kind of a, a rational um, sense, or at least not a kind of rational and straightforward way, but this tug of it being difficult to hold on to something which seems implausible or indeed seems too good to be true under under some circumstances. Um, as I say, those things, those phenomena go deep back into the medieval period, I suspect beyond, although I haven't looked further. Um, it's when the the locks are taken off them in the Reformation and post-Reformation period um, that they become pervasive. That question of, in particular, the anxiety of how do you know, how, how can you be entirely confident of the beliefs that with your rational wide awake self you, you fully believe is one that becomes a really pervasive problem um, in the in the 17th century. This is what's going on in my anxious Puritans being tempted to atheism that I began with. Um, that also acquires an edge of, of, of moral anxiety that um, as, as people begin to, to try to find ways of rebasing their religion in, in, in a way that's going to feel more firm to them, um, they're often looking for ethics as a certainty that they can cling to. Um, and so it seems to me that what's happening in, and, and I think you can see this you know, right there in Spinoza's writing, that those two themes are, are coming together, wanting to try to find a way of, of rebasing religion around, uh, around ethics, which makes it credible, um, and also, which allows you to make uh, an, an ethical critique of of, of 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 corrupt establishments, and that confluence of those themes of of anger and anxiety, and then their intellectual crystallization, um, is is what what really marks the end of my story, mm. um, the the point when the prehistory is over, and it and 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 then you know the emperor starts. Uh, Putting on his intellectual clothes and and and, and everybody's happy. Well, can I press uh, you on that then? <laughs> I know this is not. I know sure. your book. Um, uh, it does continue. You do in your final chapter. You do talk through um, a little bit about what you think happens next. Um, but given that uh, so much of your story is rooted in the Reformation and the Counter Reformation and the Post Reformation, um, how does that that, that seems to be um, bound up with a very sort of specific religious, institutional, cultural um, circumstances. How does that then relate to the atheism that comes later? If those circumstances are no longer present, how does, how does, the, how does the story link up? Sure. Well, um, I mean, you're, 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 you're quite right. The book has got this, um, this, this, this sort of hourglass shape where I've, I've, you know, the, first, the first and last chapter cover centuries and then the, 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 the middle four chapters are, are, are much, more, much more chronologically concentrated. Um, 
I wanted to try to to draw out those themes because I was struck by the continuity of them. That having identified what's going on in terms of of anger and anxiety and the way that those are fueling unbelief, I became and and in particular the way that the confluence of the two of them into a really powerful moral critique, ethical critique um, of, of of religious establishments, which which is what makes it so effective. Um, it seemed to me that that story, even from the you know, very superficial understanding I've got of the of, of, of the later periods, um, could plausibly be extended. Um, and so I, in in that final chapter, um, I spend some time just tracking those two themes through the through the modern period, essentially. You know, looking at a series of you know, dropping in very briefly on a, a you know a series of of, of you know, high-profile individuals, many of the kind of canonical figures in in intellectual history. You know, Voltaire, um, uh, Jefferson, Tom Paine, um, Bakunin, who's uh, I, I became particularly interested in, um, Tolstoy. Uh, not not Tolstoy, Dostoevsky rather. <laughs> um, Definitely not Tolstoy. There's a, there's yeah. a bad mistake. <laughs> Um, uh, and and indeed, um, some of the 20th century um, developments as well, George Eliot, um, and and really saying, look, I can we, you can see these people talking about unbelief in their day in terms that are very similar in in terms of the the emotional logic behind them. To what's being said in the in the earlier period, um, and that you know now that we're sensitised to as as I hope to, to to thinking about these moral and emotional motivators of, of of unbelief, that you can see the same logic at work in what Bakunin or Dostoevsky or or others are saying. And crystallizing into the same kind of of moral critique, um, and and I finished the book in in kind of conversation with with Callum Brown, um, suggesting that the 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 really dramatic secularization of the of the post Second World War era can usefully be explained in terms of that sort of of moral critique as well that you know if the the point that i started with is 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 correct and that the the intellectual case against religion has weakened rather than strengthened during the 20th century we need to look for the roots of the um 1960s and post-1960s secularization somewhere other than an intellectual critique um and of course that's 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 kind of truism amongst historians of secularization um but my argument is that this long history suggests that that emotional story, in particular, the in particular the ethical consequences of that emotional story, the way it's able to construct a a properly secular moral framework, which in the post Second World War world appears genuinely compelling means that Christianity or the Judeo-Christian religions, that kind of weird Second World War construct, um, suddenly no longer have their main task, um, their main social task, which had been to provide a generally accepted moral framework, that that's now something which has has itself been secularized. Um which I I think is a point worth making, um, partly because I, I well partly because I think it's true um, and I think it's interesting, but also because it suggests that the secular moral consensus that we believe we share um, is actually the product of a particular set of late twentieth century historical circumstances and may well prove a lot less stable than we grew up thinking it would be. Hmm. 
And look, I said that whole thing without mentioning the current president of the United States. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're nearly hitting the hour mark, and I still had many, uh, many more questions I wanted to ask you. So, yeah, if I could, uh, yeah, if you could do these, respond to these very, very quickly. Sure. If that's possible. Annoyingly, one of the questions written down here is quite long, but I'll try and shorten it down. Um, if you're, oh, I don't know if this would be annoying to phrase it like this, but um, I was brought up, as it were, in the Cambridge School intellectual tradition and uh, in the writing, you know, treating Quentin, Quentin Skinner like it's a sacred text. Um, but in one of the chapters there, there's a discussion about um, you can understand actions within context, right? You can understand um, what an author is trying to, a text is trying to do by placing it in the context of other texts. You can extend, that's all historical action, really, an actor sure. in context, you can understand. But you don't know what's going on, going on inside that author's head. That is not available to you. Their emotional um, state is not available to you. And Skinner's really quite... Um, really quite sceptical about what you can actually say about what you know, humans think they're doing. That's sort of out of bounds. We can't talk about that. Built into that argument is the idea that humans aren't necessarily emotionally literate. So we don't, mm -hmm. they don't necessarily know why they're acting, even if they're writing um, these uh, confessional self-exploratory works, even then they might not know why they're writing what they're writing. Um, by contrast, you seem far more confident in a historian's ability to recover past emotions. Um, is that fair? Uh, why would you have that confidence? Uh, um, I'm not sure I am much more confident or whether it's just that I don't think I've got any alternative. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I very much buy that, that approach. Um, I think it's a critique equally of emotional and of intellectual history, because if you can't know what's going on inside somebody's heads, um, you know, you, you can't know what they're feeling or what they're thinking. And if people aren't um, emotionally literate, literate, then they often don't really know what they think either. Um, and you certainly can't believe them when they tell you. Um, on the other hand, what they tell you, you know, that, uh, you know, that is data. Um, and, you know, I, I think very often the, you know, interpreting people's historical actors' emotions, or indeed those of other living human beings, um, has to be informed by as wide a range of sources as you have open to you with a, a, a profound awareness of the, the, the slipperiness of, of of the um, of the task you're set upon, um, I think it's simple. I mean, this this is going to sound like a feeble answer to the question, but I think it simply requires close reading, but maybe a different kind of close reading from that which um, we're accustomed to within within the field of of, of of intellectual history. It's often about listening to the listening to the silences. Um, and and spotting the the shifts of emphasis, I've become particularly you know attuned to or interested in the difference between arguments which are advanced as rationalizations or as stage points, and the ones which appear really to which are kind of blurted out in a revealing way and appear really to express. Um, the emotional drivers behind the arguments. What's what's truly persuaded somebody? Yeah. Um, and I do not have a, a a neat rule of thumb allowing you to distinguish those two. Um, but I do think that it's possible, with a, an acceptable degree of uncertainty, to be able to discern what's going on, especially when you've got a, a, a enough of a range. Of, 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 of sources so that you're not simply dependent on a single individual. Oh, brilliant, thank you. And then, um, would it be fair to say, it's the last point about sort of your use of sources, one of the things that I think <laughs> I was initially annoyed by, uh, is that the right way of putting it, was sort of the repeatedly, at least maybe in the, uh, the first chapter, maybe this doesn't continue on, but um, if you have your heroic story of intellectual history, you know, uh, ideas turn up and then they uh, inspire and they offer very sort of coherent, persuasive accounts of man and the universe and so on. Lucretius mm. is translated, is discovered and then disseminated, but doesn't say anything new in your account. And then Machiavelli turns up 
and writes about Lily and doesn't say anything new about religion either. Um, but you, so you take well, that sort of. A, I'll, I'll can respond to that point in a second, maybe. But I, I found I read, I read you were sort of demo, say democratizing your sources. Would that be a, an okay way of putting it? Where you have various different voices from various different parts of the social stratas, and they're all leveled out. That'd be fair. They're all leveled out as being evidence yeah. of unbelief. And I, yeah, I just wondered about, um, is that a fair description of how you're using your sources? I, I, I think that is fair. Um, I mean, there are individuals who stand out, and I think Machiavelli is definitely one of them. Um, you know, if, if I, I, was, I was trying to put what he was saying into a kind of a, a, a broader <laughs> socio-intellectual um, framework, and I think, you know, you, you know he had a context, but he's an extreme figure, I think, by 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 any um, uh, um, by any reading. And I mean, the the, the work that's um, that's been done um, on the um, yeah, by Ada Palmer's stuff on on the manuscripts of of Lucretius and showing just how exceptional Machiavelli's reading of mm. Lucretius is, I think, is 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 really compelling. But yeah, democratization. I'll take that. Um, I, 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 I do think that what makes the, those sorts of texts valuable for the kind of historical analysis I'm interested in is not that they show us some exceptional intellectual figure, but they show us what it was possible to think and say within the context of the time. Um, what was novel enough to be interesting and shocking but was nevertheless conceivable and and could be constructed um and even when you get something like lucretius you know whose text arrives as 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 genuinely shocking and different um the way that he's actually used you know the 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 things about that he's saying that are really difficult for the for the era to process and you know, tends to just be spat out. You know, he's 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 mostly read as a as a stylist or as a you know, um, a source of of detail of, about ancient history and and his atomism. You know, people don't want to know. Yeah, um, there is no swerve. There is no um, swerve. I, I'm sorry, Alec. I, just because I, I I promised um, uh, I wouldn't go over an hour. Well, we've gone over an hour. Um, so okay. I. I mean, it's a really fascinating, thought-provoking book. I think there's a tremendous amount of potential here, for, you know, potentially uh, useful. I mean, the story is really fascinating and, and uh, interesting, but also thinking about... It's described as a notional history, but it feels to me just sort of a very comprehensive... Coverage of different themes is comprehensive, right? And that allows for a very rich and nuanced story in which ideas I, and things. I'm was... afraid I've been doing this for long enough that I've I've, I've got to the point of thinking that you know, <laughs> all history is emotional history. That the, yeah. this is this is the fundamental medium in which the history of human beings need to be told. But I'm aware that that sounds a, a, a little bit megalomaniacal. Well, you could. The flip side of that is to go. It might sound like it would be a very. Um, Idiot, not idiosyncratic, but a very sort of distinct type of history. And what it felt like, it was a very, um, you weren't, you know, it wasn't just about emotions. It was placing those emotions in context and all the various complicated things going on. Yeah, it's uh, a very rich approach to the subject. And I hope people listening to this will, will uh, you know, take that on board, maybe respond to it, be inspired by it. Um, so thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, is there anything you'd like to tell us about what you're working on next? Oh, well, the, the the project that I'm deep in now is um, is 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 about the history of the global spread of Protestantism, um, which is a a story that's usually taken, you know, that's usually framed as as why were there so few Protestant missionaries in the 16th, 17th, 18th century? And I started it trying to answer that question, and it turns out there were rather more than we thought, but just it was it was happening in a different way and with a different set of assumptions than we we've, we've understood so i think it shines a light on um the nature of religious change in that period and of, of, of religious globalization um helps to question some of our assumptions about cultural difference and how we got to our our ideas about that 
Um, so I think there's a there's there's a story to be told there. It's turning out to be a rather bigger <laughs> story than I thought when I began researching researching this. So so don't expect that, that book to be out immediately, but hopefully <laughs> you know sometime in the next few years. Well, hopefully we can have you on again in the future once that has uh, turned into some turned into some publications. Um, thank you very much, Professor Alec Riley, for your time. It's been fascinating. This has been Robin Mills for the Talking uh, Intellectual History Podcast. We we'll hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you.